Well, good morning, Summit family. If you have your Bibles, won't you meet me in Revelation chapter 2? With all that's going on in our society and world, uh, it's easy to get real distracted. I just have a real simple word uh, to give to you this morning. Real simple reminder, nothing deep today. Uh, For the deep stuff, come back next week and our pastor will be able to jump into the deep end of the pool. We're going to be in the kiddie pool uh, this week. But Revelation chapter 2, pick me up in verse 1. This is Jesus talking, Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, God, would you speak to us? I pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take root, that it would bear much fruit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Several years ago, my dad tells a story. There was a colleague of his uh, who had to catch a flight to China. And the day of his trip finally came, Georgia Bulldogs, God bless you. God bless you. Amen and amen. I grew up in Atlanta. Man, you are blessed and highly favored. (laughs) Anyways, uh, so the day of his trip finally came. He's headed off to China, and uh, uh, here he is, uh, and he checks his watch as he's been running errands all day, kind of preparing for this trip to China, and realizes as he looks at his watch that he's running perilously close to missing his flight. So he rushes home, throws his, you know, um, clothes and stuff in his suitcases, kisses uh, his wife and kids goodbye, throws his suitcases in the trunk, slams the trunk, hops in his car, speeds down the 105 freeway there in Southern California, make his way to LAX, goes through the necessary uh, security checkpoints, makes his flight just in time, takes his carry-on baggage, puts it in the overhead compartment, sits down, breathes a sigh of relief, and then as the plane is starting to taxi down the runway, he begins to have this nauseating sense that he's forgotten something really important. But he can't quite put his finger on what it is. Anybody here ever been there before where you just kind of go, man, I've forgotten something and, you know, can't necessarily quite figure out what it is? Finally, at about 37,000 feet in the air, somewhere over the Pacific, it hits him what it is he's forgotten. And the very thought of him causes him to double over in agony, and he's banging his head just going, man, how could I be so silly and and dumb to forget that? See, in his haste to make his flight, he had just pulled up curbside at LAX, hopped out of his car, left the car running, thinks the door was open to his car, 
And here he is over the middle of the Pacific, 37,000 feet in the air, and Lord knows what's happened to his car. See, in his haste to do um, a good thing, take a trip to China, he neglected to take care of an essential thing, his car. See, while there were many flights to China that day, he only had one car. He exchanged an essential thing for a good thing. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there. You know, as parents, we've, we've been there with our kids. We know what it's like to exchange an essential thing for, for good things. Uh, I've got a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 16-year-old. Man, if all goes according to plan, you know, two years from now, we're going to be, you know, um, empty nesters. You know, Psalm 127 says that children are like arrows, not boomerangs. I mean, we're, we're, just, we're just claiming that right now. And, but boy, no one, I mean, no one's told me. I thought having young adults was easy. It's not easy. Anyways, that's another sermon for another time. But me and my 20-year-old are talking on the phone the other day. He calls me. He's checking in. And, and then the conversation kind of turns, man, and he just kind of, you know, is just like, Dad, you know, I just wish you were around more. And I'm like, I, I got I to gotta own that. See, in my haste to do a good thing, I want to provide for him, there were seasons and stretches of my parenting that I neglected the essential thing, which is time with him. Even in our own marriages, we understand this. I mean, the essential thing, God just kind of names, here's what your marriage should be about, Brian. Genesis chapter 2, Jesus repeats it in Matthew chapter 19. I have just kind of proclaimed over your marriage oneness, what Tim Downs calls soul-level harmony. I'm calling you and your wife to walk in oneness, and yet as one person said, the problem with life is that life is oh so daily. And we can just kind of go into these seasons where, man, I just remember just, you know, one kid's got a t-ball game over here, another kid's on a soccer field, and, man, we got, you know, busy stretches in marriage, and I got flights to catch, and we can be like ships passing in the night, and you string enough of these things together, and the last one leaves the house, and you're just kind of eating that P.F. Chang's together, looking across the table at a stranger. You've exchanged an essential thing for a good thing. College students, you understand this. I mean, here you are, the essential thing is you're, you're at that university to get a degree, but, but you've done some good things. You've made some connections and building some relationships. It's wonderful, but don't let that distract you from the essential thing in which you're there for. The very temptation of life is to exchange essential things for good things. This is the message of the church at Ephesus. Their struggle, we're going to learn, is our struggle. Again, I ain't got nothing deep for you today. The problem with the church at Ephesus, Jesus says, in essence, you have gotten so grown and so mature and so sophisticated in your faith that you exchanged doing good things for me with being with me. And I want to talk about that. Here's Jesus. He decides to give a piece of mail to seven churches. Right out the bat, the first church, he says, I want to give a postcard to is the church at Ephesus. Most New Testament scholars will tell us we cannot possibly understand our Bibles without understanding the church and city of Ephesus. Here is Paul 
he decides to plant a church, Acts 19, in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was regarded as the New York City of its day, a very strategic place. Paul walks into the city and he goes to the synagogue and preaches Christ to the Jews. Some Jews come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He's not done. He then goes to the hall of Tyrannus and preaches Christ. Some Gentiles come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. What does he do? These two different ethnic groups can't stand each other. He doesn't start two separate churches. No, he starts one church and calls them to work out horizontally what God in Christ has already accomplished for them vertically, which is reconciliation. The multi-ethnic church is one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the veracity of Jesus Christ. So he calls them, I want you to flesh this thing out. Soon enough, an emerging church occurs and it starts to grow and grow. And scholars tell us that Ephesus becomes the hub of a strong, vibrant missionary community. Ephesus is highly influential. We know it's influential because in antiquity, the sequence of numbers oftentimes tells you its importance. The fact that Jesus Christ is giving a letter to seven different churches and the first church out of the gate is Ephesus tells us that Ephesus is strategic and important. He begins by addressing the letter. Will you look at verse 1 with me? to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, what does this mean? John MacArthur and other Bible scholars tell us that that fundamentally angels are messengers. They exist to uh, kind of bring a word from God to his people. They're messengers. And that's why MacArthur and other Bible scholars says that the angel is the pastor or the leaders of the church. He goes on to say in verse 1, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, what does this mean? You don't need a, a, a commentary or to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. He already answered this for us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. Look at it with me. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, here leaders, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus Christ begins by saying, listen, I want you to know that I've got the leaders and the churches in my hand. It is a symbol of his control. The fact that he says they're in my right hand is a symbol of his powerful control. He says, I want you to understand, I am sovereign over your life. I am sovereign over the Summit Church. Not only that, he says, I actually walk among my people. I walk among my churches, not as a security guard waiting to point out negative things, but, but this is a symbol of his pastoral care put it all together. Jesus is saying, I'm holding your life. I'm holding the life of the Summit Church in my right hand, and I'm walking among you, which means I am exercising right now sovereign care and control over your life in this church. This Jesus is not on the History Channel. He is very active in the reality show that is your life and this church. Oh, you're going to make me shout. You keep saying amen over here. I love it. Now, what does this mean for us practically? 
As my grandmama used to say, uh, son, I need you to put some shoe leather on this. What does that mean? When we really understand that God is exercising sovereign care and control over the summit and over my life, it should eliminate worry. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says three times, Therefore I tell you, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. I love what Max Lucado, that prolific writer in San Antonio says. Max Lucado says that worry is our emotional reaction to a perceived event. It's different from fear. Fear is our emotional reaction to an actual event. Worry is our emotional reaction to a perceived event, to what might happen. I love Tony Evans. Tony Evans says, worry is paying interest on trouble not yet due. I love that. When I understand, God, you are exercising sovereign um, care and control over my life, that nothing surprises you. That at no point do you ever peer over the balcony of heaven, then look at the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, did you know that? That should eliminate worry. Now, what does this mean for us? Summit Church, collectively, man, we, we are in a, man, an unprecedented stretch. You talk to the average pastor, they are uh, expressing deep concern, maybe some even worry and anxiety about COVID and what's going to happen once it finally abates to to my church, will I even have a church? Or, man, you you just kind of look at the political turmoil that's out there. I sit on the board of a Christian university, and we spent a lot of time talking recently about what happens if and when the Equality Act passes, and there's deep concern for us there. Or, 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 Or you just talk about the racial climate and all that's happening there. I mean, we're living in a milieu that can threaten our sense of confidence. But God is saying, I want you to look at Scripture and I want you to look at the witness of church history. The church has survived a global pandemic called the Black Plague. The church has survived bad political leaders. The the church has actually thrived in racially hostile climates. I, I, I think I can get you through this one. And what's true of the church is true of your life. Man, this has been a crazy stretch. One of my pastor friends says, you know, 2021 doesn't feel a whole lot different so far. feels like December 82nd, 2020, he said to me. And I've had to constantly remind myself, he takes care of the birds, he clothes the lilies of the field. How much more important than I, who've been made in his image, he's got me. God's got you. He's got you. He's got you. Jesus now moves from this, and he opens up by giving the church at Ephesus a commendation. He begins by telling them, I know your deeds. The Greek word, which is the original language of the text, for know, it speaks of, watch it now, not of a knowledge that comes by reading, but a knowledge that comes by experience. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've been checking you out. Isn't that a thought? Jesus is saying in so many words, I've been checking you out, and there are some things that I love about you. He now rattles off nine things that he loves about the church at Ephesus. I don't have time to do a line-by-line audit, but, but let me just say this. These nine things fit in three big buckets. He says, the first thing I want you to understand is, I've been checking you out, and I want you to understand 
I've got to applaud you. You are a hard-working church. He says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil. The word there for toil, it means to labor until the point of exhaustion. He says, I've been checking you out, and here's what I've concluded. You ain't a lazy church. Y'all are working out in the marketplace. You're doing your 9-to-5 job, and then you're showing up leading your small group. I mean, you guys are busting it throughout the week, and then you're coming and you're serving in children's ministry or, or you're out on the parking lot ministry. Man, man, you are a hard-working church. I just got to tell you, I've been checking you out. Laziness is not in your vocabulary. Not only that, he tells them you're a hard-working church, but secondly, he tells them you're a faithful church. He says again, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, here it is, and your patient endurance idea of endurance it is the power to withstand hardship or stress you've been through some things you, you, you you've been through 2020 the devil threw some haymakers at you man you, you, your 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 marriage has been tested as never before you know, the, the schoolwork has been tested as never before. Look at you. You are still here. You are in church. You've endured. You've gone through some things. But not only that, he says you're faithful. You're hardworking. But thirdly, he says you're a discerning church. He says, but have tested those Verse 2, who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Here's what I love about you, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. Just because a person gets on stage on Sunday morning and maybe has the title pastor before their name, you're not gullible. You're not just taking what they're saying. You're discerning what they're saying and sifting what they're saying through the word of God. You are a discerning church. You are not easily led astray. I mean, can't you hear Jesus clapping? Hard-working church, faithful church, discerning church. I mean, you guys are killing it. And then verse 4, but. Ain't it just like Jesus to find something wrong? But. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the times I've taken my car for a simple oil change at Jiffy Lube, man, and after doing the oil change, they come out, man, it? oil looks great, rotate your tires, just wonderful, but you need a new radiator. Or you go to the dentist and for simple cleaning, and your teeth look great, but you got a cavity. And here's Jesus, yeah, wonderful things, great things, but I have this one thing against you, and boy, is it a doozy. You've abandoned your first love. The Greek word for abandoned, hear me now, it's oftentimes in the New Testament translated as forgive. When we forgive, what are we doing? We're sending away the offense. Now, this word is great for grudges. It's horrible for Jesus. Jesus says, at some point, you got so sophisticated in your faith. You got so immersed in the latest Bible study. You got so caught up in the latest program that I'm no longer first. Now, now, now let's look at context. You don't need to spend a day in seminary to, to figure this out. He ain't talking about people who ain't come to church. He's not talking about individuals who are just, you know, living in the flesh. 
He's talking about people who show up, who serve, who go to the conferences, who take the notes. He's talking about church people. And he says, at some point, your priorities, Brian, got out of whack. I mean, I've been preaching over 30 years. I love preaching. And maybe Jesus is saying to me, that's the problem, Brian. At some point, you love preaching more than me. You love doing things for me more than being with me. Now, I went to Bible college, so I wouldn't have to do math. Math is not my forte. In fact, when my kids came home, you know, and they were on the unit called Fractions, uh, I tapped out and I said, there's an app for that. (laughs) But one thing I do remember about math is there was a section that we went through called Order of Operations. Anybody remember Order of Operations? Order of Operations is uh, equations that they put inside a parenthesis. And there's, you know, multiplication, addition, uh, there's division, there's subtraction. And fundamentally what uh, order of operations says is that you just don't jump in there and start doing the math. That there's a sequence you have to work. In fact, what order of operations actually says is if you get the math right but the sequence wrong, the whole thing is wrong. Jesus is saying, I'm proud of myself for using a math uh, illustration. Jesus is saying... You got the math right, but you got the sequence wrong. The whole thing's messed up. I'm not your first love. Now, what is first love? I mean, what, what, what differentiates first love from second love, third love, fifth love, 20th love? What, 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 what's unique about first love? One word, passion passion. I'll never forget it. It was January of 1998. Uh, I was in church. It's one of those old school churches uh, there in LA. Um, we were uh, old school. We, we would sit, us ministers would sit on the pulpit. And uh, I looked out, man, it was like a light just shone down on this woman, man, half Mexican, half Irish, all fine girl named Corey. I've married her now found out she had just gotten saved and I felt led by the Holy Spirit to be a part of her discipleship her spiritual formation so we started hanging out man and soon enough we, we fell in love and, and I'll never forget uh, Corey uh, her apartment was in North Hollywood uh, my apartment was in Paramount and um, uh, both of us liked a group called KC and JoJo yeah, I didn't think that would work in this crowd we, we liked a group called KC and JoJo and so what we would do is we'd take our CDs um, th- these little discs, um, and we'd, um, she'd be in North Hollywood, I'd be in Paramount, and we'd put the, both put the KC and JoJo CD in at the same time, and we'd go to track 11 at the same time, and we'd hit play at the same time, and put repeat song at the same time, and, and, and we, we would talk all night with KC and JoJo in the background. Someone said, yuck. I mean, we would do that, because there's first love, you tend to do cheesy stuff like that. I mean, she turned this introvert into an extrovert. First love. Then it happened. We got married, and about six months later, Corey comes to me and says, we're off. I said, what do you, what do you mean? She goes, I, I, I just, I, I'm not feeling that connection anymore. We're, 
we're off. She didn't say it this way, but, but the passion was gone. And I'll never forget my response. Forgive me. I hope this is a safe place for me to confess my sin. But, but I said to her, I said, honey, if you ever doubt my love for you, just, just look at the roof. I mean, I, I, I pay the rent here. And just look at the refrigerator. It's filled with food. And that didn't go over well. Why didn't it go over well? Because in Corey's mind, doing things for her could never take the place of being with her. You can tithe and not have Jesus as your first love. You can go overseas on a missions trip and not have Jesus as your first love. You can lead a small group and not have Jesus as your first love. Jesus is saying, never confuse doing things for me with being with me. Is that you? Is that you? Look, I'm not ripping on you because you're a Southerner. I'm a Southerner. I grew up in Atlanta. I I grew up in Bible Beltville, Elder Brotherville. The danger of cultural Christianity. One person said the the, the scary thing about ministry is you can learn to do it. It just becomes this lifeless autopilot thing. We've all been there. Not you all have been there. We all have been there. So, so when I get my priorities out of whack, what do I do? Jesus says, you ask good questions. Here's what you do. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Here's what he's saying. Brian, when your priorities are out of whack, do these three things. Remember, repent, redo. Remember, repent, redo. Remember, repent, redo. Would you say that with me? Remember, repent, redo. William Barclay, Bible scholar, says the way back to Jesus begins with memory. If you ever read the Old Testament, most of the times when God moves in the Old Testament, he calls his people to build an altar of remembrance. When the nation of Israel crosses the Jordan uh, River at springtime, at harvest time, uh, at springtime, when, when they cross the Jordan River, miraculously, God opens up, he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Get 12 stones, build this altar of remembrance. Why? Because in the future, when, when you and your son are out traveling somewhere, you and your daughter are out somewhere, you and the family are out somewhere, and you just kind of randomly come by these 12 stones, stop, and when they ask you, what's this about? Stop and remember. Remember that move of God. Let it refuel you for the present. I hope this is a safe place. Um, so my sons, uh, Corey and, and my youngest, are down in um, Rock Hill, Fort Mill, somewhere in South Carolina. He's, uh, um, he, he's got a basketball tournament this, this weekend. And so, um, in fact, 2 o'clock today, they play Steph Curry's team. And um, so they're down there, and all that good stuff. I don't do well when my wife is gone. I, I, when I'm out of town, I can adjust, but... But when my boo is gone, that's just, that's tough. 
I hope this is a safe place. I'm about to turn in my man card, but sometimes I get so jacked up that I actually sleep on her side of the bed. I sleep on her side of the bed so I can just smell her scent. I know, I know. Then there's other times in which I'll actually walk on her side of the closet and just smell her clothes. I know, I know, that's weird, that's weird. And there's been times when I've shared this illustration and um, guys have come to me like Nicodemus came to Jesus. And they've confessed their sins as well. There's a connection between your sense of smell and memory. The scent of her makes me think of her. And thinking of her makes me long for her. Jesus says, when you've gotten off track, I, I, I need you to remember. I, I need you to think back. Before you were so sophisticated and so mature in the faith, I, I need you to remember when you first got saved and you didn't know any scripture, but you were telling everyone moving about this Jesus. R remember that. Remember when you didn't know all this sophisticated theology and you didn't necessarily even know how to pray the right way. You couldn't dot all your uh, theological I's or cross all your theological T's, but there was a freshness. There was an intimacy there. When you were talking to Jesus, you weren't talking to other people through your prayer. It was heartfelt. Remember that. Remember when the Word of God wasn't some reading plan to check off a list and to make sure you're tracking. But remember, with, there was this intimacy. There was this connection. Take a whiff of that. Secondly, he says, repent. Now, last I checked in the Bible, the only thing you repent of is sin. In context, Jesus is saying, if I'm not first, it's sin. If I'm not first love, something has taken my place. And for anything to take the place of Jesus, we call it an idol. And as Tim Keller says, an idol is anything, even a good thing, that has become an ultimate thing. Repent. And then thirdly and finally, he says, redo. C.S. Lewis says it this way. C.S. Lewis, using the analogy of marriage to point to our relationship with Christ, he says, in essence, if you've lost your passion in marriage, if your spouse is not precious, don't wait until that spouse feels precious. Do the deed, and then the preciousness will follow. So, Brian, you're driving down the street, man, and you, you and Corey are off. Don't, don't wait until you feel like it. Just pull over right now. Get some flowers from, 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 from Whole Paycheck. I mean, I mean Whole Foods. Just, just, just pull right over there. Do the works and the feelings will come. That's what he's saying. Do what you did when I was first love. <laughs> it, it may mean you, you, you may need to do what you did at, at first love. When it, it could mean fasting. 
Whatever it may do, do that. And the feelings will come. What happens as we close when we do these things and Jesus becomes first love, he ends with an incredible promise. He says, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love this. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What does this mean? Whenever you see paradise in the Bible, it always has this common denominator, the presence of God. Genesis opens up with paradise. In fact, it says in Genesis chapter 3 that when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, they hid themselves. I love this. There's a lot of stuff walking in the garden. There's elephants and giraffes. But how do I know on sound, that's not an elephant, that's not a giraffe, that's God, unless I had experienced his presence. Or take the cross. Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. In the Bible, paradise is the presence of God. Here's what he's saying. Believers can never lose the presence of God. But when Jesus is first, here's what he's saying. You will experience the manifest presence of God in your life. And then he says how it comes from the tree of life. Greek word for tree can be translated exuberance. It can be translated abundance. It can be translated happiness. Here it is. It can be translated joy. Psalm 16 brings the, these two things together, joy and presence. He says, in his presence, I love it, there is fullness of joy. When Jesus is first, fullness of joy joy is a divine protest against the tyranny of circumstances joy says circumstance you will not dictate my attitude because the presence of God is abundant in my life imagine a young man he um has just finished his PhD dissertation he hits send and Sends it into his advisor. A couple days later, his advisor gets back to him and says, man, I got some great news and I got some not so great news. The great news, man, is that I've reviewed your dissertation. It looks great. I think it's ready for us to go to the next step and schedule your defense. He says, now for the not so great news, I hate to bum you out, but I talked to the registrar's office, man. I know you should have done this on the front end, but man, somehow it just slipped through the cracks. You didn't take German. And in order to get this degree conferred upon you, you're going to have to take German. So this young man, uh, man, he goes out and finds a German, German tutor, and for the next six weeks, three hours a day, five days a week, sits down with the German tutor, and he's just checking it off the list. There's no excitement. There's no joy there. It's just something he's got to do. But now another, imagine another individual meets a young woman one evening, and his heart is smitten. Something in him goes, that's the girl I'm going to marry. And he goes over to her and feels a connection. And he starts trying to talk to her and realizes she doesn't speak English. She can only speak German. So what does he do? He goes out and hires a tutor. For the next six weeks, three hours a day, five days a week, he's meeting with this German tutor. You think there's excitement there? You think there's anticipation there? You think there's joy there? Why? Because on the other side of the task is a person. Jesus says, I'm not just a Bible reading plan. 
Jesus says, I'm not just a giving report. Jesus says, I'm not just an event where you hop on a plane and go overseas. Jesus says, I'm not just a program. Those things have its place. But on the other side of the plan, on the other side of the trip, on the other side of the program is a living person whose name is Jesus. Never get so grown in your faith, Brian. You neglect first things first. I want to pray for us. Father, we've all been there. We've all been there. Jesus, you're not just a reading plan. Jesus, you're not just a giving report. You're not just a program. You are a person who loved us so much that you got on a cross and you died for every sin we've ever committed, are committing, and will ever commit. You love us so much that Ephesians says you are rich in mercy, that you have more mercy than we have mess. You pour out your kindness and your grace on us. Lamentation says morning by morning new mercies we see. So, Father, I pray first of all for that person who's here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would lovingly draw them in. What I have given today is not a list of things to do. It's not lifeless religion. It is trying to extol the beauties of a living person. That's what Christianity is. We walk with a living person who walks with us and talks with us along life's narrow way. So I pray, Lord God, that they would see their need for Jesus. And for those of us who are in relationship with Jesus, and yet your spirit has been messing with us over the last several moments together, and we say, yes, that's me. I've got my priorities out of order. Got the math right, but the sequence wrong. Oh, for the grace to remember, repent, and redo. It's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.